0: This is by Mary Oliver in her book of poems called Thirst. She's a Pulitzer Prize winning author and National Book Award and has written two books on how to write poetry and how to study poetry. And this is a 2006 book. And I think the reason I want to read it is twofold. One is Calvinists don't read poetry, and I just want to wreck that for you. You know we're just logic choppers and cool thinker types so that's one reason and and the second reason is it's it's about thankfulness, and I have a month to go as as a pastor at this church, and I'm just overwhelmed with thankfulness these days I just feel brimming with gratitude and so I was moved by this poem as I read it in Barnes & Noble last week and then went home and ordered it This is called The Place I Want to Get Back to. The place I want to get back to is where in the pine woods, in the moments between the darkness and first light, two deer came walking down the hill, and when they saw me, they said to each other, okay, this one is okay, let's see who she is and why she's sitting on the ground like that, so quiet as if asleep or in a dream, but anyway, harmless. And so they came on their slender legs and gazed upon me, not unlike the way I go out to the dunes and look and look and look into the faces of the flowers. And then one of them leaned forward And nuzzled my hand and what can my life bring to me that could exceed that brief moment for 20 years I have gone every day to the same woods not waiting exactly just lingering such gifts bestowed can't be repeated if you want to talk about this come visit I live in the house near the corner, which I have named Gratitude. So, Father, my heart is thankful for dear and unrepeatable moments in life. And if we could see, all of them would be. And I'm thankful for Mary Oliver, and I'm thankful for... Bethlehem Baptist Church I'm thankful for these friends who have gathered here to think about the most important things in the world and I'm thankful for Christ who loved us and gave himself for us and I'm thankful for your faithfulness to me for 32 plus years ministering here I'm thankful for friends I'm thankful for Noel and Talitha and Karsten and Ben and Abraham and Barnabas and their wives and children. I'm thankful for the measure of health I've enjoyed all these years. I'm thankful for eyes to see and ears to hear and hands to touch and arms to embrace. I'm thankful for a heart that can feel and mind that can understand some little teeny measure of yourself and the list goes on forever so God I pray that we would see you for who you really are no artificial theological constructions but revelations from your word through human language of what you're really like I ask this in Jesus name amen thirst by Mary Oliver in case you're interested Let me underline the Q&A. we got eight hours together, give or take. We will not take a break tonight, so feel free to get up and leave if you need to, but tomorrow we will take breaks. This is two hours. I figured you might be able to do that. Three hours not. So there'll be breaks tomorrow. Um, But I do have right here in front of me, on this screen, questions that are scrolling as they come. And they're being typed by Marshall back in that room. And he's typing them from his computer where you are sending them or his messaging where you're sending them. So we can do this simultaneously. I'm not going to stop and say, you have a question? Because that won't work with this many people. But it it might work here. So if you have a phone uh, and you can uh, do that, then do it, do it that way. So is, the number is there. I don't know if the number will be up there. Let's go ahead and shift over to my... Uh, My machine, can we do that? Okay. I apologize for the fuzziness of this, but try to pretend that it's a third world. Um, I've got 179 slides. Divide eight hours, that's about 22 an hour, um, which is very doable. Uh, if I pass over some quickly and linger longer over the others, and I have no idea how to do that, um, but I've taught these so many years, God is always so good to us. Just so good that we come to the end more or less where we're supposed to be. So I'm expecting about four thirty tomorrow afternoon that uh, we'll be where we ought to be. So questions, do that. Um, One of the most pivotal questions you could ask at the beginning of a a seminar on TULIP, which is an acronym that I'll get to in a minute. It's, it's It's a seminar on Calvinism, or you call it the doctrines of grace or reformed theology. If you hear those phrases popping up, you know that's the kind of thing we're talking about. One of the most important questions you could ask to set your course for thinking rightly about what we're up to here is the question, how did I get saved? I'm not assuming that you are all saved. I would like for you to get saved, be saved, be regenerated, born again through this seminar. That would be wonderful, but I'm assuming most of you are And the question would be, how did that happen? And I have two kinds of uh, questions in mind. How did it happen historically? What did God have to do? But more relevantly for this moment, how did it happen to you? How you answer that question decides whether you're a Calvinist or not. How did you Become a lover of Jesus. Because you were not always a lover of Jesus. You were born against Jesus. Something had to happen to you so that you love him. You love his word. And what happened? So that's the question I'm just going to leave with you now. I won't answer it. For me, though, the answer makes all the difference in the world, for my life, my theology, how I minister the Word, what I expect God to do in seminars and services. So you should ask yourself right now, what would I say if I had to stand up there beside John and tell him the decisive way God saved me? What did he do? How did he do it? What did he have to overcome to save me? What was my part in it? And how did those two things relate to each other? My part and his part. So I leave that question with you because I think how you answer that question just term, determines the whole course of the seminar. Um, let's just look at the outline. So, those are the ten pieces. I have some introductory remarks. That's what I'm doing right now. I have a set of assumptions. I want us to be clear on what our assumptions are. A little bit of historical background to set the terms Calvinism and Arminianism in their historical settings. Uh, Differences between them outlined. And then we're going to do etulp, not tulip. And I'll tell you why when, when we get there. And then lastly... 10 good effects of believing these things. What difference does it all make? Anyway, there'll be a lot of that as we go along, but that's, that's where we're going. So, introductory remarks. One of the reasons this issue means a lot to me and has meant a lot historically is because the most important and precious promise of the Bible depends according to Paul on these things so let's look at that here we know this is Romans eight twenty eight. we know that for those who love God all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose so there's the the promise That's the the most important promise there is, because it's just encompassing of all other promises. What's the basis of it? That's why I have the little word for underlined. We know this, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called and those whom he called, he justified; and those whom he justified, he glorified. That's the argument for how you can know everything is going to work together for your good. I preached seven sermons on that unit in nineteen, whatever it was. I went back and counted them just to make sure because of how massively important verses 29 and 30 are in supporting verse 28. So, if you care about the promise of verse 28, you have to care about 29 and 30. Because they begin with four, which means they are like pillars. I remember when I preached on this back in the late 80s, they were building, and I wish I could remember, uh, one of the skyscrapers downtown that Everybody takes for granted now. And the hole in the ground was... (laughs) I just drove by it and I thought, are they building this skyscraper up or down? And I used it as an illustration. I said, the the higher this thing's going to go up, the deeper that foundation is going to go down. And the promise doesn't get any higher in verse 28... And the argument doesn't get any deeper than 29 and 30. And that's why it took all those sermons to unpack it. And In a sense, this class, you could say, okay, if you want the practical relevance of this class, this class is devoted to building foundations under Romans eight twenty-eight, so I can survive my life. Okay, if, you, if you think we're in this for fun and games, just kind of theological ear-scratching, you don't understand anything. This is survival technique for John Piper. The things that come at me in my life cannot be managed by fluff. So then there's these roots to these doctrines that go so far back in history, like to eternity. To the praise of his glorious grace or to the praise of the glory of his grace. So the roots of predestination, the roots of the purpose of his will, the roots of his grace go back before creation. That's a long time and a very deep basis. He saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. If you have been saved by grace, he gave you that before there was a universe. You just need to pause I mean, we we read way too fast, right? Just, I've done my devotions now. Instead of stopping there and having a heart attack of a good kind. Not my works. He didn't save me by my works. He saved me because of his own purpose And grace which he gave us before the ages began. He's been thinking about you a long time. Just blow you away. Let's blow you away. Change your marriage. Did mine today. Today. little tension with Noelle about the way lunch went. Why'd she leave the table like that? You upset about anything? No? That didn't mean no. (laughs) Now, the old John Piper here has two choices. Anger or patient, compassionate, query, what's going on and my default is this don't treat me that way don't like it when you walk out of the room quiet say something why are you leaving the table this made all the difference this made all the difference he has he has loved me forever he has been thinking about me and her forever he is totally on my side, totally committed to us as a couple. With all of our pain and all of our sorrow and all of our imperfections and all the failures of these years as pastor, year. he's totally for us. And he has been forever. Now, with that, I was able to go into the living room without anger and say, If, it, if you're not upset, what, what is it? We're okay. We're okay. You don't need details. <laughs> Revelation thirteen eight. All who dwell on earth will worship the beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. Before the foundation of the world... Your name written in a book called The Life of the Lamb Who Was Slain. Jesus is crucified for me in the mind of God before there's a universe. And there's a book for whom that is true. If your name is not in the book, you're going to be an idolater and worship the beast. If your name's in the book, you won't. That's big. That's really big. That's just really, really big. So we're all on, we're still on un- introductory remarks about why, why this matters. The the, the magnitude of the promise that it supports, the, the depths of the root that it has. And now, a few comments about my pilgrimage. Nobody is born a Calvinist. My father was one of the greatest men I've ever known. Happiest man I've ever known. He was an evangelist. Preached the gospel. Traveled Away from home two thirds of the year or so, and came home with stories of the triumphs of grace in wicked people's lives who got saved under his ministry. And I love the stories. He'd come home with jokes and stories of, of triumphs of grace. It was just, he was amazing. He was kind of portly, he always described himself as two toothpicks in a watermelon. And when he laughed, he said, <laughs> <laughs> It was just wonderful. Just, you wouldn't pay a million dollars for your father's laugh. And my mother, at the other end of the table, laughing at him while he laughs. And they're both just crying their eyes out with joy. So I have really happy memories about my dad. And he wasn't a Calvinist. So know that I can really love people who <laughs> are Calvinists. <laughs> He, he acted like one, though. And in essence, he was. And here's what I mean. Um, my dad loved the glory of God. Every prayer he prayed, he prayed about the glory of God. He loved the triumphs of God. He knew the Holy Spirit was necessary to save people, and uh, he, he had absolute faith in the sovereignty of God to take care of us as a family. When he, went, he didn't have any crusades lined up, because that's how he made his money, to take love offerings when he had meetings to preach the gospel. And if there were no meetings, there no income. And so we would send out letters together as a family, bow in prayer, and Daddy never doubted our needs would be met. So I was, just, I was taught and illustrated. There's a big God up there. He's merciful towards sinners. He saves sinners, and he takes care of his own, and you can count on him big time. But when, I, when he saw me begin to argue in my mid-20s or early 20s that regeneration precedes and enables faith, he just shook his head and said, Johnny, that's not right. That's just not right. I believe that, I don't think I could do evangelism. And, of course, my response was, if that's not true, you may as well not do evangelism because nobody's getting saved anyway. Well, we never agreed on that. We just never agreed on that. But it's his his fault that I'm a Calvinist because your actions speak louder than your defective words. (laughs) <laughs> and he was a lover of the sovereignty of God then I went to Wheaton and at Wheaton um, I was an Arminian I remember my senior year reading a book called oh, should have thought this through uh, Something in the Sun it was a book arguing that John Fifteen meant branches could be broken off, and therefore you could lose your salvation. So, We're branches, and if you don't bear fruit, he'll break you off, throw you in the fire. And that was just totally compelling to me. Like, okay, you can lose your salvation, and it says so right there in John 15. It looks like, and and uh, that's where I, I was when I went off to to Fuller Seminary and ran into James Morgan and Dan Fuller. James Morgan was a systematic theology teacher. I He was about 36 years old, and Dan Fuller was the son of the founder of the school and the most important live teacher in my life. He's still living, and uh, the man who had the greatest impact on me after my dad, I think, in all the world. Both of them were reformed. They didn't make a big deal out of it. They just began to teach the Bible. And it was the Bible and not any... I've never even read the Institutes of Calvin all the way through. I'm 67 years old and supposed to know all these things. I've never even read all two volumes all the way through. I find Edwards so much more helpful than Calvin that every time I start reading Calvin, I think, I should be reading Edwards. And then I do. I close Calvin (laughs) and... Go over and read more more Edwards. We all have our different favorite teachers. So here's a story that some of you have heard before, just to show you where I was. This is my, I think, my first year there, for sure. And I was coming out of a class in systematic theology where James Morgan was talking about the doctrine of election and, and the... The limitations of so-called free will, and we were talking, about three of us, maybe there's four, he was here, I was here, and there, I think there were a couple other guys around, and we were talking, and I was just steaming. I mean, I was not one of these students who was quiet. And so, I, I, I took a pen, and I said, Dr. Morgan, watch this. I dropped it! I dropped it. That's what I said. Just like that. Meaning, I've got free will. It's plain as day. That's where I was. And by the end of that class, with him just patiently showing texts, I wrote in a little blue book. I don't know if they still use blue books anymore, but we took final exams in blue books. And I wrote on my final exam, Romans 9 is like a tiger going around devouring free willers like me that's what i wrote and the battle was coming to an end and just just to encourage you a little bit about paradigm shifts and how painful they are i wasn't married yet i would be married that december and i went back repeatedly to my little private room with nobody else around. I had a desk and a bed. After another class of having my world jolted, and I put my elbows on either side, and I just cried. I just cried. That's what happens if if your world is crumbling around you, and you just don't know which end is up. You, this is not making sense anymore. It's not what I was taught in Sunday school. It's I'm just not getting this at all. Do I know the God of the Bible, or don't I know the God of the Bible? And and if you if you care about truth, you're going to have moments like that in life, unless you came into the world perfect, and you didn't. And and then there was Jonathan Edwards. Dan Fuller pointed me to Jonathan Edwards and his book, The Freedom of the Will is the most important book I've ever read on the issue of the freedom of the will. I think it's probably the most important book that's ever been written outside the Bible on the freedom of the will. Um, Luther's book on the bondage of the will may come close, but but I, I don't think there's anything more compelling or more thorough or more powerful than Edward's freedom of the will. David Wells said to me one time, he said, John, that book is like the Rockies in America, meaning it's a, a watershed. When, the, when, when you land on this book, you either are gonna go down the, the side to the Pacific Ocean or down the side to the Gulf of Mexico and the rivers, and uh, that's how important it is and how big it is. You either make it or break it when you look at this book. You don't have to read the book to come to a good conclusion, but if you want the best, there it is. And then, the, as, as with most people, the, in the T-U-L-I-P of the doctrines of grace, the L in the middle, limited atonement, is generally the one that people get stuck on the most, and we'll probably spend a good bit of time on it for that reason. And that was true for me. I wanted so bad, and I still want, more than anything, to be biblical, not Calvinist. I could care less about being called a Calvinist. Is that clear to everybody? I could care less, and uh, in, in a sense... It, it's misleading to even use the term, but, but I'm going to uh, for, for the sake of shorthand. But know that my stake is with this book. If you can show me in the book, and it's not a Calvinist doctrine, I'll say, Fooey on Calvinism. I go with the book, all Right. So I hope we're all together on that. That's one of my assumptions we're getting to in just, just a minute. So I was stumbling over a lot of texts that looked like Christ died for everybody. And there are a lot of texts like that. And so I was slow to come to the L. And that's why I put John Owen down here, The Death of Death, because I was at Bethlehem in the house I'm in now, which means it had to be 1983 or after when I was still reading The Death of Death in order to settle this issue for myself. That's how long it took for that one to fall into place. And, and it was this book that helped me To settle that so John Owens the death of death and now I've tried to lead this church in a way of biblical faithfulness which I think is the doctrines of grace these 30 some years so let's go to assumptions I've got about eight of these just so we're all on the same page these these are things I'm just not going to bother arguing for I could have whole seminar on number one we believe that the Bible, consisting of the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, is the infallible Word of God, verbally inspired by God, without error in the original manuscripts. That's my assumption. It, uh, uh, the DVDs of the whole seminar, why we believe the Bible is the Word of God, is available at Desiring God. You can get that, but know that my final court of appeal in any of my theological arguments is the Bible, not any human being. Number two, being faithful to Scripture is vastly more important than being faithful to Calvinism or Arminianism. Number three, right thinking about what the Bible teaches about God and man and salvation really matters. Right thinking matters. Bad theology dishonors God and hurts people. Churches that sever the root of truth may flourish for a season, but will wither eventually or turn into something beside a Christian church. Number, I'm going to skip Tozer, but I'll just say Tozer um, did a great service for the church in the mid 50s of the last century, in the 60s, on the knowledge of God, the pursuit of the knowledge of a holy, and and, uh, he just cried out for a big view of God. Number four, the work of the Holy Spirit and the pursuit of his work in prayer. Is essential for grasping the truth of Scripture so right thinking about doctrine is essential and now I'm saying Holy Spirit and and pursuing him through prayer is crucial right now in this room nobody will embrace the truth without the work of the Holy Spirit we'll see that in other texts right here it is first Corinthians 2 13 we impart this Paul says his truth in words not taught by human wisdom but taught by the Spirit Interpreting spiritual truths to those who possess the Spirit. So, we are taught by the Spirit and we're speaking to people who possess the Spirit. The unspiritual man, that's the person without the Holy Spirit, does not receive the gifts of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man judges all things, but he himself is judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So I think that means if you're spiritual, you have capacities to assess what is true and right and people who stand outside the Holy Spirit, outside the scriptures, will try to judge you and assess you, but they won't succeed. It takes the Holy Spirit in order to recognize the things of the Spirit. So I have been praying for you for several days and even before that the Holy Spirit would come here. This should be a charismatic meeting, meaning that unless we have the charisma, that is the gift, of the Holy Spirit in this room right now, I will be wasting your time. And you'll be wasting your time. If the Holy Spirit doesn't come and become our teacher, nobody can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians twelve three, And nobody can say the other truths and mean them without him number 5 thinking is essential for grasping biblical truths so the holy spirit is essential prayer is essential thinking is essential brethren do not be children in your thinking in infants in evil be infants but in your thinking be mature or think over think over what i say for the lord will grant you understanding in everything so notice that connection here's here's what you're supposed to do tonight tomorrow Think over what I say, and then you look to the Lord to grant you understanding. Don't say, oh, the Lord gives understanding. I don't need to think. And don't say, oh, it's telling me to think. I don't need the gift of understanding from the Lord. Evidently, in the way Paul thinks, your thinking with me about the Bible is the way God gives understanding. Number six, God ordains that there be teachers in the church to help the body grasp and apply the truth of Scripture. I think sometimes we're so individualistic in the West that we forget that, that the body is a means of growth and understanding, not just Our Bible and the Holy Spirit and God, like this. So you got your Bible, you got the Holy Spirit, and you got a brain, so you go into a closet and you come to your theology. And if if that were the way it was supposed to be, Ephesians 4 and the whole New Testament, which wouldn't make any sense. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. Like what? Can't they equip themselves? No. No. I mean, he just wouldn't set it up this way. Of course you should read your Bible. Of course you should buy all the books in the bookstore. Of course you should study. And, and, and you should go to seminars, and you should go to worship services, and you should be in small groups so that the horizontal dimension can refine and deepen and correct and take you somewhere. I've, I've done that. I still do it. I've got teachers I go to every day. They're all dead. Well, they're not all dead, but most of them are. Right now, I just finished listening about four sermons of John Harold Ockengay. They just found them in the archives at Park Street Church, Boston. These are sermons from 47 to 57 of the last century. And this is the man through whom God called me into the ministry. I never met him. I love him. Never met him. Love him. And I'm getting to hear him on tape for the first time in 50 years. This is 1966 when I heard him preach. That was the last time I heard him preach, and I, I felt called the ministry through him. So here I am on my on my iPad, on my phone here. Um, as good as God's when it comes to the reliability and dependability and trustworthiness and faithfulness to the profession we have. Isn't that incredible? You just heard John Harold Lockengay <laughs> preaching in Park Street Church in 1957. That's amazing, so yeah, i go I go to school every day, and so should you, so yes, that's true. Teachers are given to the church seven like like all fallen, finite human people, you and I see in a mirror dimly. We do not claim to be perfect in what we know, and we do not claim to know all that can be known, nor do we claim to see what we know more clearly than anyone else may see it. But we do say with the Apostle Paul, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we speak. Though we do not know everything, there is to know and though we do not know anything perfectly, yet we do know many things truly. And I hope you can make that distinction. We do not know anything perfectly, comprehensively, flawlessly. But we do know many things truly because God's revelation and God's spirit. Let me illustrate with these, these few here. Paul says, we, and he included himself, we see in a mirror dimly, 1 Corinthians 13. But here he says, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We know that a person is not justified by works. the law but through faith in Christ. We know that when he appears we will be like him because we'll see him as he is. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Those statements are just illustrative of the fact that knowledge is possible for fallen, finite, non-God people. (coughs) God would not have Inspired a book and preserved it for us if he didn't think knowledge was possible. Knowledge for which you should be willing to die. Last one. Nevertheless, there remain things that God has not chosen to reveal to us. And we must often be content with mystery Deuteronomy 29, 29. It's easy to remember. Keep that one in your mind. Deuteronomy 29, 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. Um, let me pause and look at the questions here and see whether any of them would be, would be good to, to do right now. Um, Are the implications to the idea of Calvinism non essential Should brothers and sisters agree to disagree on this? Um, You have to agree to disagree on this if you can't agree. So, um, but I would not call all of the teachings that separate Arminians from Calvinists non-essentials. I think it would be better to try to point those out as we go along. Second question, how does TULIP impact decisions outside of salvation? Does free will exist in other areas of life? Okay, good, good time to define free will. So saying, if you deny free will in salvation, do you deny it in, in purchasing uh, which blizzard at Dairy Queen you're going to get? Um, here's my definition of free will free will is ultimate self-determination ultimate self-determination by ultimate I mean there's no cause after your choice that made you cause it that's decisive And if you have that kind of willing, I decided and nothing was decisive in bringing about my deciding, then you believe in free will. If you believe, I do decide, my decision is real, but I know that God ultimately governs what I will decide, then you you don't believe in free will. And that's what I believe. I don't believe in free will defined that way. Now, almost nobody who uses the term on the street means what I mean by it. Here's what you mean when, if you get in an argument on public radio or something, free will is what America's based on. What do you mean you don't re- even free will? All they mean is you believe you have choices that should not be physically coerced with a gun or jail or, or, or fine or whatever. And I believe in that free will. You know, I believe in that. So we just, when you when you get into an argument with somebody, the first thing you should do with every kind of argument is let's define our terms. Because once terms are defined, most of the arguments are over. So, my answer to the question here how does does free will exist in other areas of life? In my definition, no, except for God. God's the only person with free will. Meaning. God's the only person who, when he decides, nobody caused him to decide that. When I decide anything, God is always the one who ultimately is the decisive influence that caused me to decide it. If I mean choices are real, choices are responsible, I'm responsible for my choices, then. Free will exists not only outside at the Dairy Queen, but inside at salvation. Okay, you can ask for clarification on that later, and you can ask about implications of that, because they're huge. Number three, does God micromanage the universe? For example, did he make me sit in this chair? Um, Yes. There is no, R.C. Sproul says it this way, there is no maverick molecule in the world, in the universe. Like God saying, ah, ah, come back here, come back here. That molecule, and, and then he, 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 he's better at it than I am, he says, you know, uh, for the loss of a nail, the shoe was lost. For the loss of a shoe, the horse was lost. For the loss of the horse, the battle was lost. For the loss of the battle, the kingdom was lost. And that's why it matters that there be no maverick molecules. Just might get out of hand, and a meteor might land in Russia, you know, blow the whole world up, or something. Before the time, before the time, See, "Oh, how'd that happen?" God, God, God is never. Uh, Shaking his hands, God never says, oops. He micromanages the universe and he micromanages your life. Now, there is a a slight problem in the word make here. Oh, you've got to be so careful with language. For example, did he make me sit in this chair? Almost inevitably when you ask it that way, you mean against my will. God never makes you do anything against your will. I wonder if I can make that statement stand. Never. Your will is always doing what it wants to do and it is a responsible will. And God governs our willing, not by making us do what we don't want to do, but by influencing our will in ways that preserves our accountability. I don't think that statement I made is true. I think I think things happen to you. I don't know, I'm going to have to think about that. I got to be careful. Things happen to you that you don't want to happen to you, that's for sure. And uh, but whether you make any choices against your will. I don't think so. One more and then we'll keep going. Number 4. Why this is there are 20 more questions waiting for me answered dear dear dear. Why do you think free will theology is so prevalent in our culture and churches today? Everybody's born believing in free will. And everybody wants to be God. That's why. Everybody is a rebel. We're going to get to total depravity. E-tulp, it's number two. E-tulp. So T is number two. T is total depravity. Every one of you is an out-and-out rebel deserving of hell. What would be more natural than to believe in, I can do what I want to do, thank you very much, and butt out of my life. Don't even begin to tell me that God governs my life, and I am still responsible for my life. Nobody's, nobody's going to br- embrace that as a as a rebellious human being. You have to be born again. Oops. Okay, we'll stop there, and I'll come back to all those questions. They're going to mount up. A little historical background. You can you can if you can see the number, yeah. No, you can't. It's too blurry. We're at nineteen. How's that? not bad. We're okay. What What's the historical historical background for this Calvinism Armenian thing? And then you can you can forget about those words if you want. John Calvin, the great reformer of Geneva and author of the Institutes, was born in fifteen oh nine. Converted at the age twenty one. Died fifteen sixty four. And here's what he says about his conversion. I, I, I love this, and it just so helps understand where he's, he's coming from. God, by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame. Which was more hardened in such matters than might have been expected from one at my early period of life. He's about 20, 21. Having thus received some taste and knowledge of true godliness, I was immediately inflamed with so intense a desire to make progress that although I did not altogether leave off my other studies, I yet pursued them with less Ardor. Indeed indeed he did. His father hoped he would be a lawyer and, and when he was converted he abandoned that and became a theologian and a, and a pastor. I'm glad he did. The Dutch theologian Jacobus Arminius. So now we have Mr. Calvin and Mr. Arminius, two real human beings. I think we'll see both of them in heaven. So it, it, that's part of my answer to the earlier question about what's essential. Because uh, I, I just got out my old biography of Arminius this morning, written by Bangs, B-A-N-G-S, just to remind myself of things, things he said. And boy, if there were Arminians like that around today, I'd have a lot of friends in that group. Because he was such a blood-earnest, serious biblical theologian. And I can go a long way with people who are blood-earnest about the Bible. Dutch theologian Jacob Arminius was born in 1560 and died in 1609. He came to disagree with the key tenets of Calvinist doctrine. In the early 1600s, a controversy arose, especially in Holland, between the Arminians and the Calvinists, the groups who bore the name of the persons who most powerfully expressed their understanding of Scripture. Number four. In 1610, I got these out in my creeds of Christendom today, just to remind myself of them. In 1610, the Arminians presented five doctrinal positions called the remonstrants to the state authorities. These expressed the key areas where they disagreed with Calvinists. From November 13, 1618, to May 9, 1619, so about eight years after that, the Calvinists met in the Synod of Dort, they get Dort, Iowa, and Dort College, and uh, to answer these five disputed points, their answers came to be called the canons of Dort, and these are the original expression of the five points of Calvinism. And thus the five points were not asserted by Calvinists as a summary of their doctrine. They were the Calvinist response to the Armenian remonstrance, who chose these five points with which to disagree. See how that came into being? Um, the, the Armenians read Calvinist doctrine, and they said, we don't agree with that, we don't agree with that, we don't agree with that, and there was five of them, and they wrote the the declarations, the remonstrance, saying, these five things we think are wrong in Calvinism. And the Calvinists looked at that and said, huh, we need to have a, a synod and decide what we think about that. And then they studied for that year there, or November through May, and then they wrote the Canons of Dort, which are now the five points of, of Calvinism. Nevertheless, these five points are at the very heart of how we understand God, and sin, and grace, and atonement, and salvation, and all the things that are touched by these great realities. In short, the five points are vital to understand and have a bearing on all of life and ministry. So another comment about the question, how essential are the differences? You can't answer that in the abstract because there are lots of different ways to disagree with a truth. You can say the truth is hellish and the diametric opposite is true, or you can say the truth is not quite right and affirm something that's almost in it, but not in it, you see? And there's a whole spectrum of kinds of disagreements you can have over any given point. So I can't answer in, in the general, like, oh, if you're an Armenian, you're lost. That's not true. Or if you're Calvinist, you're lost or, uh, or, or even certainly bound for heaven. That's certainly not true. You can have perfect doctrine and go to hell because doctrine doesn't save you. Jesus saves by faith. And some mighty poor doctrine can bring forth some mighty wonderful faith. That's an important thing. I should have put that in my assumptions, maybe. Let me say that again. I never equate a person's thinking about God with his true trust in God. Because you can have very right thoughts about God and be a very defective man and a defective believer. Your faith is weak and you sin a lot and you can have a pretty defective view of God and the Holy Spirit mercifully through that defect gets at your heart, really changes it, and really causes you to walk a life of love better than the man with a better theology. It's never one for one. I think all things considered, we should try to be as faithful to the Bible as we can be. But I never assume that a church over here that has the best theology is going to be a more godly church than a church over here that has less good theology. Now, some people might hear me say, oh, well, then what's the point of the seminar? Because God is honored by right thinking, and over time, right thinking preserves the kinds of structures in thought and in affection which I think will breed more godly people long-term, more persevering people. But at any given moment, in any given city, in any given church, you, you can't draw a straight line from doctrinal orthodoxy to biblical, living, loving faithfulness.